Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Health on the Line. This week, we're focusing on innovation with a fascinating conversation with surgeon, inventor, and entrepreneur, Elliot Street. This week, we've seen the publication of the Primary Recovery Plan. We at the CONFED have broadly welcomed the plan, its measures on improving access, widening the role of community pharmacies, and improving the interface between secondary and primary care. But the big workforce challenges are still there and await the promised workforce strategy. There's also some concerns about delivery. ICBs are expected to play a major role, but they're having to hugely reduce their headcount at the same time. More broadly, and this is where we're doing a lot of our own thinking, we need a fuller and more rounded vision of the future of primary care within systems, places and neighbourhoods. Also this week, Danny Mortimer from NHS Employers and I gave evidence to the House of Commons Health and Care Select Committee on the industrial disputes in the NHS. We talked about the impact the action has had and the work leaders and managers have had to do to minimise patient harm. We await the outcome of the new RCM ballot and talks between government and the BMA junior doctors. We will, at the CONFED, continue to press all sides to be pragmatic and creative so that we can avoid further disruption. Finally, next week I'll be delivering the annual Stevens Lecture to the Royal Society of Medicine, calling, among other things, for a new social contract for health. If you think that's of any interest, the text should be on our website in a few days' time. But now, let's hear about innovation in the NHS and the barriers to it from the very impressive Elliot Street. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm excited to be uh, talking to Dr. Elliot Street. So uh, Elliot Street is an award-winning clinician and the co-founder and CEO of Innovus Medical, a multi-award-winning designer and manufacturer of surgical training technology. Uh, Elliot completed his medical training at the University of Manchester and Oxford University Hospitals. Uh, He's an alumnus and mentor of the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Programme, and he holds a position on the Liverpool City Region Innovation Board and is a strategic advisor to Liverpool Ventures and Liver Labs. So that's the basics about you. But let's start with your your journey. So I've kind of given the bare bones, but I'm interested in particularly the journey from clinician to entrepreneur. The, the journey really started um, back at medical school uh, where I was training in Manchester and I was looking at uh, my future career as a surgeon in the NHS. And I was thinking about how we train surgeons. And this is coming from someone that's come from a, a relatively high sporting uh, pedigree, um, playing tennis to a reasonable level. And I was looking at um, the, the pathway for training surgeons and how we did it day to day. And I thought, hang on, we, we're not really training surgeons how I would expect us to train, which is more akin to elite athletes. That's the first thing. And the second thing I noticed whilst I was going through this journey of exploring what a surgical uh, career would look like was I thought we probably should be moving a little bit more of the early learning curve away from the patient bedside. It, it's, it strikes me that um, that was fine two or 300 years ago where early learning curve is, is very much at the patient bedside, but there's technology around now or should be technology um, that could shift that early learning curve, as I say, away from the patient bedside and, and into what we would describe as a simulated environment. So a very realistic environment for training. Um, so 
I was exploring that whilst I was at medical school. And then I got very, very lucky. Um, and as per your, your opening uh, piece there around us meeting over drinks, uh, I was lucky enough to meet my co-founder um, at a drinks party whilst we were uh, at university to, together with um, a mutual friend. Uh, and my co-founder, Jordan, he's a, he's a multifaceted engineer. And he'd been looking at this from a different perspective. He'd been doing research into predicting how, um, how good someone may be at surgery. And we both came to the same conclusion that some changes need to be made and that as a couple of 22-year-old students with no money, uh, no contacts and no real knowledge, we were best placed to uh, change the way in which we, we train surgeons. Um, so that's how we got started. So, so the, the, the thing that's interesting to me about that, apart from the fact that it makes me feel inadequate in the sense that I can't believe really I would ever have, have, have taken such a leap into the unknown at any point in my life. But, but apart from that... You very much started with the problem. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment about about cyber surveillance, and that's a book in which, as it were, the person starts with the product and then starts to think, "Oh, that's interesting. I kind of I could apply it this way. I could make money out of it that way." Some of them not not particularly ethical, but but for you, you didn't start with the solution. You you started with the problem. Absolutely, and we talk about this a lot, which is this this problem first innovation it's really important um, to us as as innovators and uh, and business leaders um, but we, we we talk about a lot to other people who are thinking about their own innovation journey whether or not that's other clinical entrepreneurs or other people outside of the healthcare space which is um you see it so often where there's these great bits of technology and, and virtual reality is a prime example of this which is an exciting very marketable piece of technology which is searching for a home and a problem to solve and and yeah, we, we've always taken this approach of let's look at the where the problem is and let's really delve deep into why that problem exists. What are the drivers of that problem? And therefore, we'll use those drivers that are causing the problem as our core values or our core focus to go and solve it. And then we'll build the technology that's most appropriate for that. So um, what that does lead to is an 11-year um, journey where one could argue that we sort of completed our first decade of a multi-decade uh, process, um, but it's a good job that we're enjoying it along the way. But yeah, I think that the summary there is uh, problem-first approach is absolutely key, uh, but it's not an easy uh, approach to take. I guess you had some notion at the outset of, of, of elements of the solution. And as you say, you brought to it the kind of way in which elite sport was using technology and enabling people to simulate as closely as possible the kind of conditions of elite sport competition in their in their training so you brought that to it then i mean my, my sense is you, what what then happens is a fairly recognizable path and i'm interested in 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 the fact that i'm sure for you it didn't feel like a well-traveled path it felt like a unique experience but it, you know you kind of start off you've got no money you're working i don't know in a garage or somewhere you you don't really have to raise much money initially maybe you raise it from i'm just i'm describing the the classic account here and you can tell me how similar it was you raise money from family and friends that gets you going on your first stage you get the breakthrough you develop a kind of prototype and at that point, now you have to go and get some more serious money. You get some more serious money at that stage, interested about when the NHS plays into this process. Then you get, my goodness, here is something. There is a product. It does work. And then you get into the kind of final stage, which is 
which I guess you're still in now very much, which is, my God, we've got our product. It really works. There's a huge market for it. How do we grow? How do we scale? And does that involve for you the, the, the tragedy of the founder, which is suddenly the skills that you needed to grow the business to this point might not be the skills that are needed to grow the business to the next stage. So there you have, Elliot, the kind of classic three-minute account of the <laughs> entrepreneur's journey. H- how similar to that kind of ideal type was your experience? Yeah, that, that, thanks for that, Matthew. And, um, parts parts similar and parts very different. And and I think that uh, let's. I, I think it's almost a generational thing. If we go back multiple years, anyone that's not read it, great book is uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, and that gives a, that account that you've just described right there. That's an old school built a really really successful business in an old school way. Didn't necessarily raise traditional venture capital and ground it out for a number of decades. We've sort of done that in the first instance, and I'll share a few bits with you. And if it's okay, I'll maybe just give a little bit of context as to what we do so that the listeners know what it is. You know, we um, need to hear about the product. Um, um, I was building up to that. But yeah, let's, let's bring the product into the picture. Really. I'm so sorry. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let the host do the hosting. And I'll, um, <laughs> there's a very, very brief overview, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to it so as to, um, uh, to touch on it properly. But we... The, the quick summary is we create solutions for training surgeons in a simulated environment, and that includes hardware and a digital surgery platform. That's the summary, and I, I, we'll go into a little bit more detail. But when we started, we went even lower than the family and friends round, i.e. we didn't really have any family or friends that particularly had spare cash lying around. And so the first product we ever created we created with a heat gun and a sheet of plastic and a drill. And we created it in my co-founder's grandparents' garage. And our first ever product we sold, this is a this is a box trainer for, for training people in minimally invasive surgery. First product we ever sold, our total startup capital, I think amounted to 180 pounds. And we did it in the proper old school way for the first sort of six years, which is every time we would sell something, we would take that money, we'd plow it back into the next piece of equipment to make the product better, um, the next piece of technology to make the, the website experience better, or um, the next piece of technology to add software solutions to that. So in a way, yes, that that more traditional approach to building a business that you hear about in these stories and these movies of these big businesses and brands, I think that the universe of today um, when you look at it, it's a it's a it's a digital surgery business first. That's the that's the sort of the, the uh, from the outside in. That's what you'd see. Um, and if you looked at that, you'd expect to, me to be saying, "Look, we raised loads of venture capital really early. We're still burning loads and loads of cash. We're still having to raise loads of VC to stay alive." Um, and it, actually, I was having this conversation um, only yesterday that. Of the around sort of ten million um, that we've raised over the lifetime of the business, only around a million of that has been dilutive. And and again, hopefully for those listening that are interested in innovation, if you do find a, a solution to that problem, you'll be amazed that people are actually willing to part with their money to get hold of that solution. And that's what I think we were very very um, lucky and 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 able to do in the early days, which is. We found a really clever, really sort of elegant solution to this problem because we went with a problem first approach. People are willing to spend their budgets on it, and that allowed us in the early days to uh, to build the, the business 
um, with what we call patient urgency, but build it profitably and, and not have to dilute. So we've, we've done all those things you mentioned, but we've done them in a roundabout way. Um, and what it's meant is that we've, we've built the business in the way we wanted to, which has been nice. So let's go back to the product because um, when people talk to me about innovations, particularly technological innovations, there's a very clear divide for me between those things which I simply don't understand. Doesn't matter how many, doesn't matter how many times someone explains it to me and those where I think, oh yeah, I, I kind of get that. And I'm sure we have lots of surgeons who listen to health on the line, but but help the non-surgeon understand why it was that what what the pro, what the kind of real physical problem was about people training uh, other than on a human body and how it is you went about solving that when we when we think about the traditional way in which we we train um, it's that at the patient bedside um, with a, a mentor and a mentee apprenticeship style and the classic adage of see one do one teach one so very early you are learning your craft at the patient bedside and that's the thing that we originally looked at and said, okay, we need to change that. And then if we're going to change it, we should we should shift it towards training like athletes or elite athletes. And that would mean moving early learning curve into a simulated environment. And, and bearing in mind, simulators existed before we'd come along. So we then looked at the, the, the current solutions, in inverted commas, to the problem. And we said, well, why haven't those solutions been adopted at scale and shifted this paradigm where the, the, early, the early learning curve is done to a specific standard for surgery. And we realized that really there were, there were three main problems. So existing technologies invariably were too expensive. Um, they were not necessarily accessible or scalable. And the, the technology they tend to use, uh, in this case, um, virtual reality, that uses software and motors to teach us how things should feel, so soft tissue should feel. And we were finding that that just wasn't realistic enough for surgeons to say, we can use that to replace the traditional approach. So armed with that information, what we looked at is to say, well, what technology would solve those three issues? So how can we make a piece of technology that is more affordable, more accessible and more scalable and, and ultimately more functional, so more realistic when it comes to how the surgery feels? Um, and now I, I realize what I've said there is we're saying we're going to make a technology that's uh, cost less and is better, uh, which everyone says that can't possibly be the, the, the case. What's the catch here? Um, and, and the way we... We, we describe it and the adage we give is it's very similar to the computing industry and the shift that came with personal computing. So 50s and 60s, it's mainframe computers, very expensive, large bits of kit, difficult to access in large buildings. And then along came the likes of Apple and Dell, et cetera, and they put more powerful systems in the hands of everyone in the world. And that's how we see the world for and the future of, of surgical training. And for those that aren't surgeons, what, what is it that I'm actually talking about? Well, it's a simulator that you put real instruments that you'd use to operate into a box and you operate on synthetic tissues. So you're using the actual instruments you would use in real life and you're operating on tissues that feel like real tissue, but around those tissues are digital overlays. So it's a digital environment that makes it look very immersive. It looks like you're actually operating. And then without going into too much detail, there's lots of other software and technology that allows us to objectively measure performance, trigger complications, allow people to understand the cognitive learning involved in surgery. So really what we did is with the benefit of hindsight, we looked at all of the things that had come before us and we cherry picked all of the solutions that partly solved the problem. And we like to think now we've combined those into a solution that solves the whole problem in one go. Now, this is a technology that I guess is your customer primarily 
medical schools, universities, or or and 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 well, explain all this to me because often, of course, innovators get very frustrated, feel very frustrated when it comes to interacting with the public sector and systems of public procurement, et cetera, et cetera. What's been your experience? Yeah. It's, uh, and the first thing uh, for anyone that is innovating and thinking about this, I think really important, and, and this will evolve, but it's really important to early on try and segment your market for your customers so that you understand do I need to change parts of my offering for this particular customer? Who, first of all, who are my customers? That I, who, who do I think they are? And let me go and acid test who they are. So to answer your question for us, yes, we, we do play in the undergraduate space, but the majority of surgical skills are acquired in the postgraduate space. So that's in the UK, um, hospital systems where the registrars and the core surgical trainees are. In the USA, it's the residency training program. So again, hospital systems. But what we also looked at when we were mapping that for our, ourselves personally is... It, is it just in the hospital systems and in the hospital where surgical training is going on? And we realized the answer to that was no. There was a massive amount of surgical training being delivered by industry. So those are medical device companies who are delivering surgical training to teach people how to use their, their devices safely, but as a value add, supporting and sponsoring surgical training to teach surgeons how to actually do the, the procedures. That's the difference between technical and clinical training. So when we mapped that, we thought, oh, hang on, we can't just we can't just focus our offering just on one part of that. And we'll talk about what our mission is as a business because it won't let us get to where our mission needs to be. So again, when we were thinking about solving the problem, we were innovating our technology such that it could be used by anyone at any touch point within the continuum of delivering surgical training. And, and the example here is our technology is completely agnostic. So I can put the instruments of one medical device company and then the next medical device company and the next medical device company into the system and allow surgeons to use those instruments so they can get good at learning that specific instrument without having to make wholesale changes to the technology. Um, and I think that, yeah, for any innovators that are listening, first of all, yeah, map your segmentation of your customers and then start testing your theories with them. And then very importantly, do not try and make a different product for every single one of those customers because it will, it will be a complete, it will be a nightmare, it will be a mess. Try and make a piece of technology, which is what we've tried to do, which is as, as agnostic as you can, that has a core piece of technology that can serve all the needs of these various customers and then make small changes or small additions if, if you need to. But the customers are public sector bodies, mm -hmm. are they, uh, on the whole? And I'm interested in, in, in terms of the support you've had along the journey and in terms of the growth of the company, how is your experience of having a product which ultimately is not, not exclusively, but, but, but in large part, I guess, being purchased by the public sector? I have to say, overall, our experience has been positive. Um, and I think part of that is because we have very much engaged the concept of patient urgency, which is be incredibly patient over adoption, but every day get up and go after things with urgency. And I think let's let's take the NHS as, as an example. Um, a, a huge majority of our revenue still comes from the NHS. It was our primary focus because that's where I was. I was working as a clinician. I previously as the medical student, then working anyway, and I wanted to solve this problem for this institution, which I, I loved then and I still love now. And so. It's been a major focus for us. And in terms of how we found addressing that, one thing I will say is, um, and this is what we counsel all of our team members on, you just have to keep turning up. 
you cannot expect that there's going to be a silver bullet. Even with central um, uh, procurement towers or pathways or whatever, you still need to go and engage every single stakeholder at every single site to make sure that this product not only is going to get purchased, but going to be actually be used. Because there's a big difference between just selling lots of kit and actually actually moving the needle and, um, and making a difference. So if, if someone said to me, well, that you've got a majority of revenue going into the NHS, how on earth have you managed to do that? The very simple answer is we just kept turning up enthusiastically turning up and continuously putting the kit in front the perseverance and resilience is really all that all that i can give to anyone because i don't think there is any magic formula um overall though if you said to me is that a positive or a negative experience i think it's a positive experience because even when we go overseas to the us as a, as a contrast and we're selling into these large hospital systems which could be seen as one huge single customer they, they never are these these large hospital groups are again broken back down and it's exactly the same process so um, i think when people get comfortable with that and think okay i've got my mind around the fact that this isn't going to be a piece of tech that i launch i raise a couple of billion dollars for in venture capital and I'm out in, in three years as a, as, as a billionaire or a multimillionaire, if they think I'm going to take a long-term patient view on this and enjoy the process, then you can be very successful selling into the NHS and they can be a great partner. Yeah, I have absolutely no problem about working with the private sector, with commercial partners, very important part of how we drive innovation in the NHS. But I do sometimes feel that our commercial partners are, are the way they talk with us and engage with us does not fully understand the challenges that we face in the NHS mm. and doesn't understand, for example, the public's view, which is when it comes, I don't know, to, to, to issues like profit or data, that the public's attitude to these things is, is that they don't want that much money to be made in profit from mm. something that's paid for by taxpayers. They, they don't want private sector companies. They don't completely trust to have access to public sector data. And that I sometimes think that commercial partners treat these things as, as kind of annoying uh, interference with their big idea. And I would say, no, this is part and parcel of working with the public sector, with its accountability, with its limited budgets, with the fact that it has to ration its resources. Now, that, that, that takes me, Elliot, to, to, to your kind of business model because – uh, and, you know, I, I thought when you told me this, it was really impressive. And I, I, I didn't think you were blowing smoke up my posterior when you told me about it. So uh, you can share it with listeners. You are absolutely driven by wanting to make a change. You're absolutely driven by wanting to improve the quality of, of surgical education or education for surgeons. And what that means for you, particularly in the British context, is you're going to make you're going to sell this as cheap as you can in order to make a reasonable profit but actually what you're driven by is the spread of your technology and the impact it will have we we believe in it so much that we've made affordability one of our three core values um and i'll, I'll take a step back if that's okay because it, it helps i have one way of answering pretty much every question anyone asks me about the business either internally or externally and i can answer it by our mission statement so our mission is simply to become the world's partner for surgical training. And what that actually looks like in practice is whoever you may be, a loved one or yourself, if you're going for a surgical procedure, wherever you are in the world, if we've achieved our mission, you'll be able to turn to the surgeon and say, how did you learn how to do this? And they'll say, well, I use the, the, the universe technology, but most importantly, 
I had to do it this many times in the safe simulated environment to this standard objectively measured before I touched a patient. And when you think about that as a mission statement, that that helps get everyone out of bed and across the business and all our stakeholders get excited by it. So how are we going to achieve that mission? We're not going to achieve that mission by price gouging people. It's just not going to work. And so when we go back and look at that problem we were looking to solve, what were one of the problems we realized? Well, simulators exist. People can use them, but they're £150,000 for a piece of kit. And you put one or two of those in the large training centers in the country. What about the people um, in in rural parts of the country who don't have access to that, that simulator? It's not fair. So when we looked at that, we said, well, affordability must be a core value for us. And and, and I wasn't blowing smoke. And I'll, I'll, I'll share, I think, the story I may have shared with you, which is our flagship product, which is, we like to think, and there's good evidence for this, has made a paradigm shift in the the quality of training, we bring to the market for one-fifth of the price of our our nearest competitor. And we do have venture capital investors that sit on the board and they say, well, could maybe we consider maybe doubling the price and you're still vastly more affordable than the competitors. And our answer is no, because it won't move the needle and it won't allow us to achieve our mission. So we believe in that really heavily. And I'll just I'll just share this one last point. The, the, the most difficult part for me of running the business is I've, I've now stopped clinical practice for the time being, and I miss that immensely. And the only thing that got me to stop that and that, that moved me out of clinical practice was the thought that we actually have a real chance of achieving that mission. And I need to be here at the helm to make sure that one of those very important core values of affordability we, we stay true to. And so, and so far, we've managed to, which is great. And tell me also, Elliot, because we haven't mentioned this at all, about your workforce, because that was another really fascinating thing you shared with me. You've brought some really great jobs to a part of the world that, that needs them. Yeah. And w- I mean, when I'm t- t- describing the technology, um, some listeners may not expect for me to say that our headquarters are in St. Helens in the northwest of the UK, famous for coal mining, glass manufacturing, uh, and a certain rugby league team, and hopefully seem to be famous for, for surgical training technologies. But um and, and I'll take a step back. I, I grew up in a, in South Wales. Um, my, my co-founder grew up in the Northwest in, in St. Helens. Um, we were both, inc- and we know how lucky we were, incredibly lucky to meet the right people to mentor us at the right stages of our lives to get us to where we are. We, we both talk about that all the time. And, and so we take that process and, and that responsibility for ourselves very seriously now. So in St. Helens, there are some incredibly talented young people. And you find them in the strangest places. So hopefully this uh, this will be an enjoyable story. We we found one of our most talented product engineers in Maplin or the former Maplin Electronics Store. Um, we like to joke that we 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 nabbed him, and then the whole the whole corporation uh, came tumbling down. Um, this is a young nineteen year old lad who's grown up in St Helens, doesn't particularly want to go to university and and, and labour himself with student debts and starts talking to my co-founder about something that my co-founder didn't even understand. He was a very good engineer. And my co-founder had the, the foresight to say, hang on, who are you? What are you doing? And would you like to come and potentially work for us? And that was four or five years ago. And this, this guy hadn't had to go to university. He's now operating as a, a, a mid to senior level engineer in his early 20s earning great money, learning amazing skill and adding unbelievable value to us as a as, a, as an organization. And, and we've got that story over and over and over and over again. And so what, what we've actually done, and we're really proud of this, is we've built a, a sort of career progression continuum 
so that we can think about that in a more um, long-standing and forward-looking view. So we have the continuum where we know we can bring people in as apprentices, uh, we can bring them in as, uh, as interns or as work experience students and plug them into the various parts of the business and accelerate people through because as we move them up, we're going to need to backfill them. And so, yeah, we're really proud of that. And um, uh, and that particular story is one that always uh, brings a smile to people's faces. I mean, I could talk with you for hours, but we're running out of time. So the final question, I guess, is, is, is what's next? Now, I, I know you're taking the product out to the rest of the world. I'm really interested in the challenges that that, that involves, particularly I think that in, you're working in, in the States. I wonder whether you're resisting the opportunity to make a bigger profit in America where they are arguably they've got bigger budgets to spend uh, on, on, on things. But also, to, to what extent is the next stage for you all about widening the use of this technology or do you have other ideas in the back of your mind new products that you'd like to explore developing a lot of people think oh you probably just you probably just double the price in the, in the us and, and it's not the case because we spent a lot of time again asking the questions of the end users what, what are your challenges and what are your problems and alarmingly i was sitting there going oh my goodness these are exactly the same as the problems they have in the nhs there's not necessarily central funding or clear budgets for training because it's still technically a nice to have. It's a little bit more mature in the US in that there are certain benchmarks or uh, objective standards you have to show to progress in your training. We're not quite there yet in the UK, but we're getting there. So for, first of all, it's it's great because we can keep the same narrative and the same story going. And over the other side of the pond, they love it. They're like, these, these guys are these guys are really thinking about the problems we have. So that's that's been really refreshing. Uh, to your point of, do we look to new products there's there's two answers to that. The first is focus is absolutely key. It's key for us um, uh, to make sure that we deliver on that mission. And the first thing we need to do is get to a level of adoption in the United States that we have had here in the UK. Uh, and again, it goes back to that. The NHS has been a brilliant partner. We would not be in a position to be entering the US without the NHS as a customer because it's such a strong customer base for us. Our plan is to take the technology we have and get to the same level of um, sort of market penetration there in the US with exactly the same core values. The The other interesting thing with our current products is that part of our mission statement of being the world's partner. And I'll just share this if I, if I may. It's a really proud moment for us, which is uh, in, in December, we, we announced that we're, we're the official partner for the um, Association of American Gynecological Laparoscopists there their flagship national training program. So now um, any gynecologist being trained in minimally invasive surgery, laparoscopic or, or hysteroscopy, um, the technology to do that is our technology. Uh, and it's being made in St. Helens in the northwest of England. And that's an example of really where we're going with our strategy, which is not just trying to sell widgets to sites and make money. It's how do we actually come away from this, however many decades it takes us, step back and go, Wow, we've really made an we've really made an impact here to to patients' lives. And then the final piece, very very quickly, which is you have to be forward looking for the future. And and what technologies do you want to develop? Well, um, we're constantly developing our technology stack, but also um, what other parts of surgery do we need to address? We only address two very small parts of that right now, and our plan is, of course, to address all of it. So lots to do. Um, very exciting times, and, and and most importantly, we're we're really enjoying it as we go along. It's been great to talk with you um, i'm glad that you've shared those experiences with us and you know i wish you great luck as you go on the next 
stages uh, of your journey. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And as I say, it was lovely to meet you. And uh, thank you so much for having me uh, um, uh, on the podcast. Hopefully it's added some value to the listeners. For some people listening to Elliot's story, there might be a sense that there's kind of two separate parts to it. There's this very clever entrepreneurial technological side to it, the business side to it. And then there's all the other things that Elliot shared with us about the way he goes about this, about what motivated him. But I want to argue that those two sides absolutely go together. And that the message I would have for any entrepreneur, innovator, wanting to work with the NHS is to apply the principles that shine out so much from Elliot's account. So first of all, really focus on the problem. How often is it that I've spoken to people in the NHS and commercial partners and and got the sense that the partners aren't really fully understanding the problem? They've got something to sell. And, you know, as as the old phrase goes, you know, to the person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they've got a product and they need to make the problem fit the product. So first of all, make... Make the product fit the problem. Don't try and force the problem to fit the product. And then secondly, ultimately, your aim when you're working with the public sector, with the NHS, has got to be impact. It's got to be making a difference to the world. Profit is a means for you to do that. But if the aim is profit and impact is secondary, well, you know, you're not going to get the trust. And again, what shines out from earlier is what drives him is impact and profit is a means to that end. And then finally, if you're working with the public sector organization, the NHS, based absolutely on a core set of ethical values, then you need yourself to be an organization that takes ethics seriously in what you do. So I suppose I want to say to commercial partners, focus on the problem, aim for maximum impact, and recognize the ethical challenges of working with a not-for-profit organization, a public sector organization, and you're much more likely to succeed. Goodbye. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.